Open your Bibles to John 2, then I'll dismiss the kids after we have scripture reading. The Gospel according to John, Bible's in the back if you don't have one. If you don't own one, please take it as our gift to you. The Gospel according to John, chapter 2. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, this morning. It's what we usually do and read from this text, usually from this translation. The Gospel according to John, chapter 2. Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you... You have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This, the first of the signs, of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. If you have not signed in, we have a check-in for the children, for children's ministry, please do so as we dismiss the kids. Kids, you're dismissed. If you have not signed them in, please do so. Parent, guardian. We're going through this gospel, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. Today we're in chapter 2. You heard our scripture reading this morning. Last week uh, we wrapped up chapter 1. We spent a lot of time in chapter 1 because uh, it's, it's, it's imperative. It's, it's foundational of who John says Jesus truly is. If I can wrap up chapter 1, particularly the prologue, I would say that John declares through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the eternal Word who not only shares in the essence of God, but also was face-to-face with God in eternity past. He's the creator of the world, and in Him was life. And in that life, He was the light of men. He, Jesus, became fully man, yet remained fully God. He dwelt, he tabernacled with us, and he was full of grace and truth. This glory that Jesus manifested, Moses, the lawgiver, could only get a glimpse of. But now in Christ, the presence and the perfect expression of God is made known to us. The glory of seeing the beauty and the majesty, the incalculable worth of God is in Jesus Christ, the invisible made visible. In chapter 2 of John through chapter 12, it's been known as the book of signs, the book of signs, because it is in these chapters where Jesus performs these signs, these miracles that summon belief in him as the God, the Messiah, the God-man, and his glorious work that will culminate on the cross of his ministry. Remember the purpose statement in John chapter 20, that Jesus did all these signs. Not all of them could be written in the book, but the ones that he did, the ones that are written 
are there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that Jesus is the Son of God, unique, of the same nature, Son of, that's what it means, unique, of the same nature. And by believing in Him, Jesus, you'll have life in His name. So Jesus is not here simply as a miracle worker to dazzle you as some great musician. He's not really only, I should say, a great teacher and prophet, as some say that he is. We will see in chapter 3 that he is a great teacher. In fact, he schools a Bible-thumping Pharisee. The next chapter we will see in a Samaritan woman call him the prophet. He'll do a miracle here in chapter 2. So yes, he's a prophet. Yes, he's a teacher. Yes, he is in some sense a miracle worker, but that's not the point. Jesus Christ makes perfectly clear He claims to be God, our creator and judge, who has come into the world to rescue us through his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Because he is fully man, he can die for mankind. Because he is fully God, his sacrifice forgives us and reconciles us before the cosmic throne of judgment. That's what got him killed from a human perspective. And the point is not to dazzle you. The point of this miracle, as we shall see in all miracles, are not to say, well, yeah, Jesus did these things. And you know what? I love what Jesus had to say about forgiveness, love, and and all the kind things he had to say. Just a wonderful teacher. No. He doesn't leave us that option in the Scripture. He points to his perfect life and his miracles, his death and resurrection are meant to bring us to the place of bowing our knees in total trust, yielding our lives and calling out upon him, worshiping him in complete confidence as the one true and living God who sacrificed for us. And John would say that you may have life in his name. That's what this point is. So as we look at this miracle, keep that in mind. That's where we're going. That's what Jesus is is, is calling us to do. So this story, as it unfolds at the wedding of Cana, we'll look at it through three, uh, I know I keep doing three, I'm going to surprise you soon, three movements. You think all of the Bible is written in three movements, but it's not, just kidding. The glitch, the gift, and the glory. The glitch, the gift, and the glory. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Verse one, on the third day, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, stop right there, part of verse 3. When the wine ran out, see, there's the glitch. What's interesting is the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John, who was there, is giving us this initial scene in what's taking place, and the importance of what is taking place. The wedding took place, it says, three days later, that's, Four days after, four days after John and Andrew, we looked at last week, began following Jesus. Three days after Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel began following Jesus. We saw that last week. So now these five men that John writes in chapter one are now with Jesus at a wedding in Cana, which is in Galilee, which is close to Nazareth, his home. Most people don't, most people think it's somewhere between four to eight miles. Nazareth to Canaan is about four, maybe to eight miles, depending. They don't know the exact location, but it's that close. And we know in John chapter 20 that Cana is the hometown where Nathaniel, we just read about him in last week in chapter one, where Nathaniel comes from. 
Okay, And that's important because what you see here is this wedding going on with people who know one another. Obviously, the bride and the groom and their family were relatives or at least friends, close friends with Nathaniel, Mary and Jesus and Mary's other children, Jesus' half-brother. Some have even suggested that while this wedding was going on that Mary had some sort of special responsibility in the wedding because she talked, they talk about... Um, that she was concerned about the wedding, the wine that had run out, and she was taking some sort of responsibility for what was taking place. If you notice the text, it says that Mary was there and that Jesus and the disciples were invited. So they say, you know, there, there may be a, this really a closer connection than we really know that's going on in this wedding. It's very possible. Um, I, I love the fact, if I could just make a, a side note here, is that, and this may mean nothing to you, but it means a lot to me, that Jesus is there. He's at a party. He's enjoying the festivities. He's engaging. He's loving. He's, he's celebrating parties at parties. Now, some of you think, oh, that's wonderful. Well, if you were never invited to a party, <laughs> maybe you're not as fun as Jesus. I don't know. You have to answer that one yourself. But Jesus was invited to this joyous occasion of a wedding, right? And, and we see him on mission. Now, a marriage feast in those days could last a week long. I know some of you are like, really, a whole week? Well, yes. They would, it would usually be on a Wednesday night, and the bridegroom would go to the house of the bride. He would take her with his friends and bring her to his home. They would have festivities in the evening, and rather than go on a honeymoon like we do, they would open their home for like five, seven days long, and the whole community would gather and celebrate with them. It was extreme joyous occasion. Right, This came after what is called the betrothal period. You know about that in Scripture. Sort of like a, an engagement, but more legally binding. And they would open up their home, and then the scene is of community gathering together. And also unlike today, the bride's family today in most cultures, and I think it's changing a little bit where more people are just chipping in. It's just so expensive. But the bride's family was responsible for the financial support of the wedding. That was now. Back then, it was the groom. The groom's family was responsible to see that the feast and the wedding celebration uh, went well. I have four daughters. I like that better myself. I think we should go back. But anyway, and, and, and <laughs> Jewish weddings are very important. Joyous occasion, bride and groom, extended family, community. I want you to get the picture here. And in Jewish thought, wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. In fact, one rabbinic teacher back in antiquity says, there is no rejoicing save the with the wine. So save except the wine. And we see the symbol of joy in wine in Psalm 104. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plant for man to cultivate. Talking about the Lord. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Okay? But the Bible says also, considering wine and drinking, that it causes the mind to stumble, Isaiah 28. Ecclesiastes 19 talks about joy of wine as well, but in Isaiah, it talks about anger. It's used to uncover the shame of Noah in Genesis 9, and Melchizedek, in honor of Abraham in Genesis 14, brings it to Abraham in honor. So you see this dual meaning of, of this wine. It was a blessing in, in Genesis 27. It's as a gift. So you see this kind of dual meaning within Scripture. But one of the big ones I want to see this morning, and I want you to know this morning, is that wine was a sign of the new messianic 
kingdom. Isaiah, the prophet, spoke about it. And he said in Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all his people a feast. A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. So, For us at this wedding, it is a sign of celebration. It is a sign of of joy. It is a sign of of gathering together and celebrating this wonderful wedding feast of this bride and this groom. Now, the purpose, the main purpose of this text is not wine per se. Okay? Some have used this narrative as a proof text to defend drinking or, or to defend against not drinking or saying we should not drink. Okay? I just want to just take a side note just to give you one minute, just give me one minute, and to share with you just a couple of things that you need to know about drinking, okay? Not going to take too long, but a second, just a sidetrack. Number one, drinking alcohol, having wine, a beer, whatever, is a conscience, conscious issue and a freedom issue, okay? Some people are able to drink, and some people are not able to drink. You know who you are, right? So we don't want to take this text and text and say, oh, Jesus had made wine. There's joy involved with wine, so go and drink. If you're in recovery, stay in recovery. The Bible has a lot to say about bondage to things of this world, number one. Number two, drunkenness in all ages, in all times, in all culture is sin, period. Easy, number two. Number three, the overarching principle for those who have the freedom and the conscious issue to allow to drink or is simply and clearly in Scripture, love. It has to do with putting a stumbling block before your brother. It's not to say, oh, you know, if I drink, so-and-so thinks this of me or so-and-so thinks of me. It's not about false judgment like a Pharisee approach. But it's about, will my alcohol consumption put a stumbling block and cause my brother or sister to sin? If so, love takes precedent. Paul wrote, it is not good. It is good, excuse me, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So it's about stumbling. It's about freedom. It's about conscience. It's about addiction. You got to take all that in. Okay, I just wanted to say that. I'll be more than happy to talk with you more about it at some other time. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A little weird response, right? I mean, it's just kind of like, well, that's kind of, you know, what's going on here? Uh, A guy by the name of Reynolds Price, he's a Duke University professor, pointed out and said, you know what? If you were making up a story, inventing a biography for Jesus Christ, if you were fabricating the story to show his power and his glory, you would invent something very different than this. This inaugural sign of Jesus is not this miraculous situation, but a mere social embarrassment. It's like, why would they use this one in Scripture? Like, if you were to say, I'm going to write this story about somebody, I'm going to make it up, about how glorious and good and miraculous he is, it's not going to be this. And that, that's why it's kind of, unless you really know what's going on here, it's really not about a catering disaster. You know, he doesn't raise somebody from the dead, but there's something going on. What does this mean? What is John trying to communicate? What is Jesus trying to say to us? The other thing that's really odd about this passage is, Mary turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Okay. Why did she say that? Was it just stating a fact, by the way, they ran out of wine, so don't bother going up? I mean, I don't know. Uh, You know, does... 
Is she saying, listen, I want you to do something about it? Is she saying, I'm just, I'm just, you know, letting you know? And the other thing that's interesting about this passage, and I'm going to tie it all together for you, um, is that he calls her woman, not mom. Now, I don't know how you guys grew up, but at my Italian house, if I call her woman, the backhand, the wooden spoon, I'm getting something. You know, it's kind of like, really, mom, what kind of response is that? But notice with me as we look at this text, Jesus responds to her, woman, what does this have to do? My hour has not come yet. Now, the term woman is not disrespectful. It's not, it's not implying disrespect, uh, but it is not something that men would usually, or boys or young men, would call their mothers, right? One commentator says it's more like ma'am. Well, if you're from the South, you better call your mom ma'am. So that, I don't know if that really works. Lady, maybe. It's a polite it's a polite way to distance himself from the relationship somehow that's changing in his comment to his mother. Okay? The term, what does this have to do with me, interesting, found in the New Testament only when demons respond to Jesus. Tihemenkai soy means, what does this have to do with me? Jesus comes on and seems like, is like leave us alone. Interesting. The tone, I think, is overlapped with some degree of light, maybe measured rebuke toward Mary. It's not rude. It's certainly abrupt. And basically, literally means, why do you and I, what do you and I have in common in this? You know, NIV is good, I think. It says, why do you involve me? So you could see in his tone, you could see what he says. It's not common. Why are you involving me? That he believed, I'm going to trust Jesus, he believed that that question or the idea that, you know, there's no wine, that Mary was definitely asking him to do something. Why do you involve me, he says. And the obvious answer is nothing. You know, uh, 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 why you imply, this has nothing to do with me. That's what he says. So, in some way, Jesus understood her statement to getting involved. And then notice what he says. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. There's your key. Circle that. My hour. We know for sure what that means. Because John is all over it. Here, John 7, John 8, John 12, John 17. The hour is the hour of the cross. Most clearly seen in John 12. Jesus said, the hour has come, the Son of Man, to be glorified. Then he says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Pointing to the cross. It remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. My hour hasn't come. So wrap this together and think for a moment. Here is Mary. At a young teenager, an angel shows up and says to her, in your womb is a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be called son of the most high God. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. That's a teenager. And then Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, the angel says to him, his name will be Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. This is is before Jesus is actually born. Mary in Luke 2, Luke 1, her Magnificat it's called. Her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you see all this? happening before Jesus comes. Do you remember 
that Jesus in Luke, the story tells us that he was 12 years old. And his mom and dad and Joseph and Mary had gone down to Jerusalem. It was festival time. And they had left, and they left Jerusalem heading back to Nazareth. They got, I don't know how far away. And they're like, uh, where's Jesus? You got Jesus? I don't have him. You got him? I don't got him. Where is he? Checking with family, because families who travel together, they can't find him. And they run back to Jerusalem, right? They lost God. Not a good thing. I'm going to give you my son. Hold on to him. And you lose him. And they find him where? He's at the temple. He's listening. He's responding. And everybody is amazed. Like, this kid is 12? Mom and dad come in and say, where... You freaked us out, man. We don't know where you are. And Jesus said, did you not know? Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And then the Bible says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, that may not have made a whole lot of sense at that moment when Jesus was 12. But I'm going to tell you, at the wedding feast, after all that she has been through, after raising a son who is perfect, can you imagine? Like, you're a sinner and your 12-year-old is not? That's hard, man, you know? Like, <laughs> you shouldn't do that, really? No, you shouldn't do that, you know? <laughs> so, do you see what's going on? See what's happening here? Mary may have wanted the wedding to end without humility, without humiliation, because running out of wine was huge. You, run, you could be sued for it back in that day. You could be sued. If you run out, the bridegroom was responsible to make sure everything went well and there was enough wine for everyone. And if there wasn't, historians tell us that they were sued, they actually sued by the, bride, by the bride's family. So he's like, I, she may have just wanted, look, we don't want humiliation upon this family. Maybe, maybe it was had to do with bringing certain glorious results, maybe pushing Jesus forward, I don't know. But his hour had not yet come. And that transition in relationship is pointing to his mom and saying, listen, Woman, my hour has not yet come. You can't make that decision. It's not up to you. I'm about my father's business. One day Jesus is teaching and they're like knocking on the door. Hey, listen, your mom and your, and your, and your family's out here. He's like, who's my mother and my brothers? And he looks at his disciples and says, those who do the will of God are my, mo are my mother's brothers and sisters. I'm following my father. What I hear, I do. Woman, my hour has not yet come yet. You see that? So, so I, I, you need to see this. He says, Mom, relationship between his mother is, is changed. I, I'm about my father's business. It's about the hour that is going to take place. Your relationship with me has changed. In fact, nothing you can do, nothing you can say, not the relationship we have here on earth means anything to the salvation that I will secure on the cross when that hour comes. In other words, it's not who is in your family, but who do you trust in? Mother, woman. You have no authority or position because of who you are to become and to be accepted into the kingdom of God. Why else would Jesus call her woman and say, why does this have anything to do with me? And then go and do it. I mean, he does the miracle, does he not? He, he, he answers her question and does it. It's because he needed to let her know my hour is set by my father. Your relationship with me will not get you into the kingdom. It's only by faith in me. Now, that's an encouragement to us this morning. But it's also a warning. It's an encouragement. If you're here this morning, you're thinking the way to get connected to Jesus, the way to come into his grace, the way to be reconciled to God is through my family 
I'm in trouble. <laughs> you, do you know my family? <laughs> if it's a matter of my upbringing, if it's a matter of my, 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 my you know, whatever your family has done in the past, maybe your, their attitudes toward God, whatever, if there was some connection with my family to Jesus, I am in a lot of trouble. Now he's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could change the course of, of, of your life, your lives of your children, and generations. Because your connection with Jesus is not to do with your family, but to do with Jesus who loves you. That's a word of encouragement. It's a word of warning. Really, yeah, I think so. Because what he's saying here is too often we have this godly heritage, which is a good thing, but it brings with us some sense of false security and salvation and many times brings this elite attitude. And there's a warning for us in that. God has no grandchildren, only children. Your Sunday school attendance is much as great as it is. Your family devotions, your great, 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 great grandfather who was a pastor and all the people after him were does not mean one single thing to your salvation. And all those things are good. They can be beneficial, but it can be deadly because if you're counting on that and not Jesus, if you're not leaning on Jesus, trusting in Jesus for yourself, you have a false sense of hope and a false sense of salvation and security. It's not your pedigree. It's Jesus. And that's what he's telling. And I think that's what he's trying to get Mary. And Mary, I think, gets it. Look at verse 5. Look at her response. His mother said to the servants, how dare he speak to me like this? No. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So there's a gentle woman, kind of gentle, you know, pointed uh, comment. And how does she respond? Trust. Whatever he does, tell him. Reminds me of the, um, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 with the crumbs from, you know, and she, she's bold to Jesus. And Jesus, like, kind of rebukes her and then says, wow, what a woman of great faith. She was persistent. And here we see the same thing. We see Jesus kind of gently letting his mom know where, how it's going down and where, you know, how it's going to happen. And then says, the scripture says, she trusted him. She was unsure the direction this whole story was going to go in the wedding. But what'd she do? She trusted him anyway. Some of you need to hear that this morning. I don't know when I leave this place today. I'm not sure where next week is going to bring me. I'm not sure about doctor. I don't know. What will come of my life? What will come of my situation? Mary here says, do as he says. I trust him completely. Do as he says. You see that? That's, that's faith. That's trusting, even when you're not sure. And that's what Mary is for us. Look at the, look at the gift, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. Now, again, John is being very mindful and attentive to give us very important details here. Notice where the wine is going to go. Six giant stone water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Why does Jesus do that? That's the question I asked the scripture. Why, do, why did you do that, I'm thinking? Why didn't he place the water in the empty jars that the wine was in? Get all the wine jars that have been emptied or wherever they kept it in, whatever barrels they were put in, bring them, fill them with water. Right? Just fill those up. Why does he use these water paths? And why does he tell them to fill it to the brim? Six of them. 
Water jars, just so you know, the stone water jars were used for purification because they didn't leak. The earthenware jars would leak and it would defile the water. So there were the, these rites of purification rites that the Jewish people would do. You can cross-reference that with Mark 7, where Jesus shows us that the Pharisees took it one step too far, and they're washing everything, and, and it was their way of showing. Well, let me read it to you. The Pharisees and the scribe came from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, Jesus' disciples, that were unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as washing cups and pots, vessels and dining couches, and all the stuff was being washed. Okay? This the idea of washing was part of the law. And, and the washing of, the, of this cleansing, of this purification, was an Old Testament law that symbolized and pointed that we were dirty, that sin defiles, that guilt is real, that that's, we can't just approach a holy God who is perfect that can't embrace sin by ourselves. There had to be forgiveness. There had to be washing. There had to be cleansing from sin. That's the point of the washing. Now, it is, I think it is pretty clear because we don't we don't want to get we don't want to get too crazy. What is called um, allegorizing a text, where it's just this means that and that means this. But I but I think there's some clues here to say that something's going on. And let me just give you a few. Number one, Jesus deliberately chooses the water jars for purification. He did not have to do that. And think as I'm thinking through this text, I'm like, okay, they have these six pots. They're filled with with clean, you know water to purify. What happened after they were wine? They're not washing anything anymore. So why did he use those and then stop the washing of the utensils, stop the cleansing? Notice number two, he doesn't just fill them, fill them with water. He says, fill them to the brim. Fill them so they're hovering over the top. Fill them all the way up. Why is he doing that? I mean, how much water, how much wine do you need? Right? And then look, at he fills them all. Not just one. Tells the bartender, get all six water pots, 150 gallons of wine. Something going on here. Number four, it was a wedding. The miracle happened at a wedding. Now, Jesus, we're going to end with this, but Jesus has a lot to say. The Bible has a lot to say about the new kingdom and the wedding. Number four, and I believe something's going on here. Number four, Jesus links this miracle to his hour. So you have this purification rites, filled with water, filled to the brim, all of them done. You have all this going on. Fill them up all the way. And then he says, my hour, right in the middle of it, my hour has not come. The cross hasn't come yet. So I think it's fair and it's right to conclude this, very simple. Here is a parable. Jesus is doing something in the natural, pointing to something in the spiritual. So the parable is, the water represents the old order of Jewish law, the, the purification rites that they used to do, which Jesus was to replace with something better. Through the work on the cross, through a substitutionary death, through the hour in the text, it would not only replace it, the purification rites, but, it, but its result would be this overabundance, this overflowing of grace. Look at verse 8. He says to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, but the servants did. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. You see? The master of the feast is like a wedding coordinator who's in charge, takes it to the one responsible, which is the bridegroom. Critics for years have said, you know what, that's not really what happened. Somehow they put some wine in. I mean, Barclay talks about there's so much wine, no one should take this literally. What does the eyewitness say? The water turned into wine. It's amazing, and I've said this before, it's amazing that people will listen to critics of the Bible and the miracles of Jesus that were 100, 200, 1,000, 1,500, 1,800 years later than the actual person who stood there, watched what happened, and drank the wine. It's amazing. What happened? Just what the author said. There was a lot of wine. Think. John says Jesus in chapter 1 is the creator of the world. All things were made by him and for him in Colossians 1. Here the creator who created the water is now making water turn to wine. How much wine did he gift? Did he give this huge gift to this groom? (laughs) Enough wine for the wedding, I'll tell you. Enough wine probably for the rest of his life. 150 gallons. Some commentators point out that maybe the wine was a gift in the sense where it was being sold afterwards to the community. It was a bountiful gift that he gave to this bride and this groom. Leon Morris, wonderful commentary. It is usually held that it was all the water in the six water pots, in which case Jesus was making a bountiful wedding gift to the couple, who were evidently poor. Not only did he rescue them from what might have been a crippling liability, but by his gift, he provided them, listen, he provided that they begin their marriage with an unexpected asset, end quote. The problem of embarrassment, the problem of shame, running out of water, Jesus here changes with a blink of an eye in the miraculous power of our God. And the point is, really, filling jars with such a great capacity to the brim, again, indicates that the ceremonial washing, the purification practices and rites of the Jewish law, is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus knowing that the prophets had categorized this this messianic, this coming messianic kingdom and age where wine would flow abundantly was acting out this parable right in front of them. Something greater was at stake than just the wine. He was pointing to his work on the cross. The hour of great wine, the hour of his glorification had not come, but his miracles are pointing to that reality. And little by little, as we see through this book, we see God acting in Christ and Jesus doing these miracles, doing these signs, pointing to that day. And here is a preview of it. That's what's happening here. That is what's happening. Look at verse 10. (laughs) Everyone does the good wine first. And when people have drunken freely, or drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, people have drunk freely does not mean there was a drunken orgy going on so you know. We use the vernacular maybe buzz, a little tipsy. The Greek word is mathusko, mathusko. D.A. Carson writes that this, this word mathusko demonstrates some inebriation, but no ground to conclude regarding the degree of intoxication. The point, he says, that the wine Jesus provides is unqualifiedly superior, as must everything be that is tied to the new messianic age that Jesus is introducing, end quote. That's the point. Have you ever seen anything that there was so much of, that there was an abundance of, that's overwhelming to you? 
Mary and I went on a cruise a couple years ago. Never been on one before. Giant ship. Two days into it. Step out on the deck or front, back, whatever you want to call it. Water, man. I mean, like, you can't see nothing but water. Like, as far as the eye could see, no land. We are in the middle of the ocean. Let me tell you, there was enough water there. Jesus is saying there's enough. Jesus is saying he is enough. The cleansing, washing blood of the lamb is enough. Is enough to take all our guilt, all our shame away. That's his point. You know the old hymn by a guy named Hoffman? Are you washed in the blood? You know the song. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are they white as snow, right? In the soul-cleansing power of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's a question. The Apostle John will pick it up in his epistle and he'll say this. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you really know that this morning? Do you really know, or do you just say, you know what, I know God loves me, and yet I'm still living in stain and shame and and filth. You have not yet seen the abundance of God's grace. You see, your own filth and shame and sin is washed away, not by your own cleansing efforts, but by the unceasing flow of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is enough. In your own sin, or maybe in sin that has happened to you, let me tell you, the fountain flows, not by your own work and cleansing, but by the unceasing cleansing, washing blood of the Lamb. He is enough. If you don't have a sense in your heart, of his all-sufficient love and grace and mercy and forgiveness for you, you cannot live in joy, and you cannot live in confidence. You need to hear and see this morning. You need to see the sufficiency, the all-sufficient, all-satisfying, he is enough reality in the gift of God's forgiveness for you. His unceasing, all-sufficient, cleansing power of the blood. You can't wash yourself. Macbeth, you know the story, right? Get these damn spots out. She sees this imaginary. She's hallucinating. There's imaginary blood on her. She can't wash them. No, she can't. Jesus said, fill the cleansing jars to the rim. Take from it. The abundance of wine points to the sufficiency of the all-cleansing power of the blood. Some of you need to be washed in the blood. Jesus is enough. And finally, the glory. Look at verse 11. This, the first of the signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We already said that the glory in which God will manifest most clearly is on the cross, and now as we walk, we will see his manifestation of his glory a little by little until the full culmination when Jesus dies on the cross. He upholds God's justice, his perfect righteous law, and yet show forth his love as he dies on the cross for us. And all the way, every step, until that ministry, until that hour, we get a glimpse of his glory. Now glory, we know from the Old Testament. That's all John had. Glory is the attribute of beauty. I mentioned it earlier. We're right back where we started. Glory is the attribute of beauty, the splendor, the worth. And it is evidence that is seen in the power and the presence of God. Remember Moses? I want to see your glory. I'm going to hide you a little. I'm going to show you a bit of my goodness. I'll come by. His power, his presence, his glory, his majesty. 
Here's what John is saying. The beauty and splendor, the incalculable worth, the power of God and the presence of God is in Jesus Christ. And this sign points us and points you and I to the reality that God, the Old Testament, all they had is acted new in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, though, here, too. He says that the, the disciples saw it and they believed. The, the, not everyone, he doesn't mention anything about the, 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 the bride, the groom. He doesn't mention about other guests. He doesn't mention about the, the, uh, the wedding planner. He doesn't mention anything. He says, this sign was given and his disciples, his disciples, not John's anymore, the Baptist, his disciples believed on him. John 1.14, when the word became flesh, it says, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father. That we is those who receive him. John 1.12, who believe in him. That we're born not of flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. These signs, is God showing you himself today? Is God making his glory known to you today? Is God tugging on your heart when you talk about cleansing, you talk about forgiveness, you talk about trying to do it your own? It's insufficient. Is that talking to you today? And just, you know, don't, dis, don't just dismiss this if you're a Christian. Yeah, well, he's talking to non-Christians. I'm not. Only. Sometimes we live that way. Say, oh, I believe that, but we live a certain way. Because the gospel needs to come from here to here and make changes in our life. That we live in confidence and joy. That's what he's talking about here. So how are we to conclude our time? Let's think about this one thing. This one last thing I want you to think about as we go to communion. Throughout the Old Testament, the Bible says that God speaks and, and has dealings with his people in different metaphors, images, and descriptions. A king to his subjects, shepherd to his sheep, father to his son. Each one of these aspects in the Old Testament, God is talking with his people, dealing with his people, is showing forth the intimacy, the relationship between God and his creatures, God and his people. But there are several places in Scripture, Isaiah 62, Hosea, Jeremiah 2, where God calls himself the bridegroom, the bridegroom of his people. At this time, during this Cana wedding feast, okay, at this time, A.W. Pink points out something very important. He says, Judaism still existed as a religious system, purifications, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Israel had lost the joy of their espousals, that relationship. Sometimes I feel that way too, right? That intimacy. I want to have that intimacy with you. And I want you to catch something about the bridegroom. You see this all throughout the text. Matthew 9, people come into Jesus and they say, hey, John's disciples... We see them, we see the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't. Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they won't fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The patch tears away in the garment and, and the tear will become worse. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. New wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Jesus has the audacity to say, I'm the bridegroom. John will say in chapter 3 that I'm not the bridegroom, he's the bridegroom, and I heard his voice, and now I have great joy, he says in chapter 3, verse 29. 
I heard his voice. The joy of mine is now totally complete. Wedding, bridegroom, and joy. In other words, I'm not him. He is him. Jesus is the one. Could it be that Jesus at this wedding at Cana, could it be that he is at this wedding and thinking of a final wedding that will take place? When he, the bridegroom, will purchase his bride? Isn't that his hour all about? Revelation 19, we come to the end of culmination of history. He says, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and people crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God has come and he reigns. Let us exalt, let us rejoice. There is joy again and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven, new earth, holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared what? As a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see what's going on in Cana? Jesus is showing us that the only way he can have an, the only way we can have an abundance of wine at the ultimate wedding feast. The only way in which he will lift up his cup of joyful festival wedding feast. The only way that his spouse will fall into his arms, the bridegroom, is the hour. Is the hour. Do you know that this text tells us in verse 9 and 10 that they ran to the bridegroom and they said to the bridegroom, wow, you saved the best to last. No, he didn't. He failed. He blew it. He ran out of wine. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. Jesus will say, I know you blow it, but I have enough. Come to the messianic banquet where the bridegroom receives his bride. His hour has come. His blood is shed. He forgives sins, all sins, and there's abundance of mercy and grace for you. He says, I've come. I've come that you may experience God's love. Experience the reality that will shape us by the joy and celebration of the amazing grace and mercy of God. It will radically change your heart. Some of you here are like the water pots. Empty or partially full with the water of religion. You're trying to cleanse yourself, wash yourself, justify yourself. You lack the joy of knowing Jesus is enough. He is. He is Lord, he is Savior from sin and judgment. The solution is to believe on him, to trust him, to lay down your efforts and rely upon his shed blood. That's the solution. Maybe you're not experiencing the abundance of joy of your salvation. And maybe you need to press in the gospel deeper and deeper. He was sacrificed on my behalf. He died in my place. Nothing I do can deserve it. I look at the cross, see how wicked I really am, and I look again and see how much I'm loved. Stop trying to cleanse yourself. He alone can quench the hunger and thirst of your heart. He alone could put a song of joy in your mouth that even the angels do not sing. He alone can give you true and everlasting joy. He alone is the all-providing bridegroom for his bride and the great assembly of all those who trust him. Amen? John Piper writes, He is the all-providing bridegroom he never, 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 never fails to give us what we need. The life-giving wine of his death in our place never, ever runs out. He is the perfect, all-providing husband to his church. 
Do you believe that this morning, Keith's Chapel? This communion table is about that. This communion table is, is, is here to invite you. Jesus wants to invite you to come to remember that the blood that was shed that hour is resembled right here in that cup. We use grape juice. But it points to that reality. There's enough. Jesus shed his blood so that your sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven. The bread, the body that was broken for you on your behalf as he died in your place and rose again three days later. That's what this is all about. Where are you at? What has God spoken to you? When the band plays, we're going to just spend some time confessing sins, repenting of sins, and please celebrate the fullness of God's bountiful gift to you in his son the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your time. The band will play. When you're ready, come up. Take the cup. Take the bread. If you're a believer, this is for you. If you have not come to that place, just sing along with us and pray to God. Tables for those who have trusted Christ. We want to invite you to come. Jesus invites you to come. His all-sufficient sacrifice for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you. For, for the... This narrative that was so wonderfully kept for us. Father, thank you for letting us into this day that had taken place over 2,000 years ago. And now, of course, Lord, we are, we are looking back toward the cross. It has already taken place. The hour has come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that hour. Thank you for your obedience to the Father. Thank you for your willing sacrifice. Thank you for your blood that was shed on our behalf. Thank you that you offer forgiveness of sin, the cleansing, washing power of your blood, dying in our place and rising again. Now, Father, as we sing, help us to respond. Spirit of God, come. Spirit of God, come. Fill us that we may hear your voice and follow you, our great shepherd, our bride, groom. We are your bride. Thank you for the blood.